0: Hello, and welcome to A Glimpse Into The Future. My name is Rigas Sadzilakos, and in this podcast series, I talk to some of the world's leading experts to better understand how new technologies and ideas will shape our future. In this episode, I meet with André Goua, chairman and director of the John Thurard Cancer Center at Hackensack University Medical Center. André is also a co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Health and Healthcare. So, Andre, what are the biggest challenges in health and care, healthcare globally right now? What would be some of the three, two, three buckets that you would say are the biggest it,
1: It's a really important topic, as you know, and, and as, is illustrated by the fact that in Davos this year, we're actually up to 20% of the sessions are around healthcare, so it's really becoming our centerpiece. And the, um, there are a number of factors that will definitely radically change healthcare. And that generates a lot of anxiety, but I think it's an opportunity, because the way it is, healthcare is not sustainable. The cost, growing much faster than GDP, twice the base of GDP, representing 18% in the U.S., or $10,000 per patient per year in 2015, so that's not sustainable. The aging in the population globally, by 20 um, by 20 years from now, um, by 2050, I'm sorry, uh, 60, uh, 20% of the population will be more than 60 years old and also the increased burden on the uh, non-communicable chronic disease in both Western and emerging countries. So this is really coming, becoming a problem that we have to address seriously. And the, um, so that, those are the challenges. And what is radically um, changing healthcare are, the factor, are a number of factors that actually converge together to force us to take this opportunity and change it. The first set of um, factors is the digitalization of healthcare. Mm -hmm. That gives you access, obviously, to patients, to uh, data, et cetera, so this is really one aspect. The other aspect is the explosion of innovation in medicine. Mm -hmm. And if you focus just in oncology, but it's true across medicine, the increase of the pipeline, two-thirds of the pipeline of medicine is in oncology. We have um, immunotherapy that is radically changing cancer care, and it's just the beginning. And also we have now better ways to approach the, what we call the biological diversity of cancer. So in other words, cancers can look the same under the microscope and on a CAT scan from one patient to the other as a presentation, but behave very differently because they're genetically different. So when you put this all together, that really forced the healthcare system to change. And there's a number of directions that are being explored, and we are looking at this as part of the uh, solutions, as part of the Global uh, Council of Future of Health and Healthcare. So...
0: Which one of these technologies do you think will be ripe enough in the 10 to 15 years to have radically changed the ecosystem of health and healthcare? And how, if you could run us through a bit of the, how the digital technology is going to change and how the precision medicine you mentioned is going to change the world?
1: In your background, I work as part of the Global Council of Future Health, um, and healthcare care um, over the last couple of years, we have looked at the, what are the root cause of this problem that we just mentioned. And when the conclusions are pretty clear and uh, there's a consensus on the fact that there's it, it's because the system is fragmented and people function in silos, and there's not a there's a misalignment on the stakeholders. So the current council is really looking at solutions, and the solution to fix the problem of health and healthcare is actually multi-layered, evidently. But one of the key things is to make health and healthcare a continuum, not separate. So health, prevention, if you want to call it, mm-hmm. and healthcare or sick care delivery, right? So one continuum. And who would be at the center of this continuum? The patient. They should be human-centric, so that covers prevention, and treatment, human-centric. Why? Because this is the main players. This is the Everyone is interested in their own outcome. And if you engage the patient or the potential patient as an individual in the society to prevent um, um, medical problems, to take care of their health, they're going to be also better to deal with the disease if needed. So this is really key. And then uh, there's a number of ways to do that. Mm-hmm. So if you put this in the process of the setting of a health and prevention first, right? Not to separate, but just to illustrate the different factors, talking about technology. There's a number of technology, leveraging technology from um, obviously digital data, uh, using mobile device, using wearable, ingestible, using a number of things to try to engage your communication with the population to encourage them to try to exercise, eat better, not smoke, not use alcohol, etc., etc. So a number of things that are individually and engaging them through the technology. And doing this, you can actually establish a virtual connection with this population and have community providers, um, care providers, and all that. that could be advisors to try to have lifestyle changes. And this is really important because, as illustrated in the uh, pioneer study that was uh, run by uh, Lee Hood in Seattle, they have a thousand uh, normal individuals that are from between 20 and their mid-30s, so they all carry a a device, Fitbit or other ones, they're similar, and uh, so they can be monitored for clinical parameters. They are coached live or on the phone. They uh, monitor through their Facebook and social media, etc., and communication, and create this community that they monitor and do extensive deep studies, biological studies from cytokine profile, genetics, metabolomics, microbiome, every three to six months. And this is really interesting because they're starting to see emerging patterns of not necessarily disease, but dysfunction, that are correctable with lifestyles, changes. So this is one of the best models of prevention because you can actually show when you do an intervention that three months later your blood work has gone back to normal, Mm -hmm. so I think this is an approach through system biology. Obviously, this is somewhat complex, but this is a proof of concept that if you can actually communicate engage with the community in the context of health and engage them in the context of their community, their families, caregivers, friends, their community physically and social media. As well, but also their uh, work for workplace. If you engage everyone, everyone is a win-win situation, and everyone benefits. And this is important. So that's for the health and for the healthcare. Is still putting the patient focus, um, patient-centric, and modify the entire ecosystem around that. This is really important because when a patient is diagnosed, the only thing that they care about is their own outcome. Uh, appropriately, So for us, in order to do that, we have to be able to measure. And in the way you try to fix our healthcare, care, people think of fixing the cost. That's not the only answer. And that's not the answer. Eventually, that's why we want to uh, do, go towards value-based care. So that means the best outcome for the, the better cost, evidently at the level of population. But again, you talk to an individual. And if Joel, his concern or her concern is going to be the outcome. So you want to try to develop technology that will allow you to follow each individual Mm -hmm. on their pathway for whatever the disease. We have done a platform in oncology in our cancer center and collaborating with a number of centers on this. And many companies, many um, uh, groups are looking at this as well, using big data to try to really... um, explore what are the patterns of care and the outcome at the individual level. And not every, and it's really, I would insist on the individual level. So we capture by removing the biological variants, by stratifying patients based on their phenotype, what I call phenotype representation, that means the clinical markers, the biological markers that we know that matter in cancer, the molecular markers that we already know matter in your decision of treatment and outcome. So then you reduce your population into the smallest bucket as possible to compare Apple with Apple if I can use this this uh, comparison. So when you do this, <coughs> sort of a barcode for that subset of patients, you can actually have an homogeneous population. And when you look at the outcome, this is a reliable outcome. They should have a similar outcome. They have so many similar characteristics. So if you reuse this biological variance, if there is a biological variance, if there is a variance across providers, that's because of a uh, physician decision or provider's decision. Or the, team, or the care team. So then you can correct that. And this is really important to go, granularly speaking, at the individual patient level. So <clears throat> all of this requires a way to communicate to fix all this. We need to have a commonality. We need to have a language and something that allows people to communicate because as I mentioned before, all the stakeholders are typically very misaligned because they have different perspectives. and and if you look at just the cost of drugs in the big picture, I mean, we need to really look together at what's the best outcome. So what is the source of this commonality and this dialogue that we can establish and that's evidently through data? So data, evidence-based medicine at the individual level that would allow you to say the clinical, take an example, the clinical benefit of an expensive drug, but that is given sometimes later in the course of a disease because it has been approved after second or third or fourth line of therapy, as an example. Well, if this patient, if this population, benefit so much, we should bring this treatment up front and remove the wrong treatment. And that's really important because it's very clearly established that in healthcare in general, particularly in oncology, up to a third of the, what we do has no impact or very little impact on the outcome. And obviously it's a waste of resource and, 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 and dollars because this is done at the last few weeks of life or done something on a palliative with no real rationale and that's sort of the way we have been practicing because we haven't had the ability to really to push down towards precision medicine yet.
0: That sounds really uh, fascinating in one way uh, and something that could obviously help with a lot of problems, but my my privacy red light has been Uh, bleeping while you have been saying all of this how do you feel uh, do you feel comfortable with all of these personal data being available to the ecosystem of healthcare Uh, beyond your doctor obviously it's going to be digital Uh, how do we manage to protect uh, those this sense of privacy but also a case where my insurance company realizes that I'm a genetically predisposed to a certain disease and then they don't want to provide me with insurance anymore.
1: Absolutely. So those are really valid points and then actually part of the discussion all week during Davos here this year. And then um, there's a number of answers to look at. If you look at the millennial now, they share everything on social media, they're much more open to try to share personal lives and all that's making a segment of the society a bit easier. The rest of the society obviously if they are engaged and they see the clinical benefit and see the advantage of having a way that in telemedicine they don't have to communicate to their and go to their doctors all the time they can have um, they can see the long term benefit we need to do more education and engage them in a the process so they can see the feedback at the same time you're exactly right there's a balance of risk versus benefit so we and sharing you know the risk of sharing data versus privacy but I think this is really important we're not going to do overnight and put everything and that's why we have to uh, stratify and get some key data from the electronic medical record that are de-identified in our platform and allow us to stratify patients on a code that we establish corresponding to their own situation so we don't have to deal, to de- to deal as much with this privacy issue. But this is only a factor that moving forward is going to be very critical will require a lot of education. But unless health and healthcare... Becomes human centric, we are not going to be able to develop an effort of precision medicine and engage the society. You know, all the campaigns that have been done are great. The problem is they are n- there's a sustainability. You can induce, you know, tell someone to not smoke and all that, but it lasts to a point and it doesn't have necessarily always a great efficacy. So, one of the commonality that we are looking at as part of our solution on a current um, Council of Future of Health and Healthcare is to ad- identify ways to foster change of behavior in a sustained way. Mm-hmm. So using digital technology again, using communication with patients, using the providers, using the communities, using the employers, using a number of factors, and to try to encourage patients, to people. And we talked about this the other day on an example in Brazil, for example, and in our group, we looked at the lack of exercise. So we were looking at strategies to engage community Using star power soccer players to try to engage people that it's not just about going to play a game, you know, when you're young or only a couple of times in, in a year, is to be physically active because you see the clinical benefit. And actually, if we do this, patients feel so much better when they start to exercise and feel and do and, and eat better and, and, and not smoke and all that. They actually see the physical and clinical personal benefit. And as I mentioned before, moving forward, I hope that by having Evidence measured of the clinical benefit of the intervention that you did will be convincing enough to try to have patients continue to share their information and become actors
0: of their health and healthcare. So is this, in this uh, preventive health-enhanced future, uh, is this something that is driven by, by the market? Is this something that you, in your opinion, should be widespread for the whole population because some people might not have access to all of these New technology, smartphones, data capturing devices, uh, and they will be left out. Uh. It's,
1: it's, it's a really good question. Although the technology and small tablets and all that, I mean, actually uh, the acquisition um, in in emerging countries is very high from cell phone and, and, and tablets and all that. So that 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 there's actually something that's feasible. But when you look at it in terms of health and sick care, the. Biggest killers in our societies are non-communicable chronic disease, diabetes, hypertension respiratory disease, um, cancer, and mental health, right? So all of this, there's an enormous impact on prevention. Up to 50% of cancers could be preventable by lifestyle changes, cardiovascular disease, diabetes and all of this is affected by lifestyle changes. So in terms of having a return on investment and having a benefit as a society at large, I think the sooner the better we use this globally because it's not going to happen overnight, obviously. When you see the the enthusiasm of when, when People use their device because they feel an ownership and all that. And I think this is not going to be very difficult to convince people and population and communities to participate in their health and healthcare.
0: very interesting. One one thing that you did mention a couple of times and we didn't discuss is the the impact of genomics, genetic modification, precision medicine in uh, in their health and healthcare future. Uh, what are some of the the biggest? implications, uh, some of the biggest opportunities, but also some of the biggest risks that you see that we need to address? It,
1: it, it's, it's a really good also question that is um, often debated during the discussion at, at, at this week at Davos, is that precision medicine has become sort of a buzzword, but definitely we are close to precision medicine and we are do, already doing some of it when you look at um, an acute leukemia that comes to a patient, gets a from acute leukemia, we do extensive molecular studies to try to identify what's the best therapy for that subset of patient. So that start what is precision medicine is tailoring the treatment to the best knowledge that you have at a time so that you have the best potential outcome, right? So this is really important. But precision medicine, we very often, and you mentioned this, the genomics, omics, there's 400 plus omics that have been looked at. And those are great because they allow you to go deeper into the subclassification of patient. But I would go back to what we already know in terms of phenotype of the disease, clinical, molecular, biological markers that have already been used for years. And we are still sort of lumping patient together, so if we could sort out this patient and then use the genomics to the next layer deeper of precision medicine, because within those buckets that I mentioned that represent patients that have the most similarities at the time of diagnosis with the knowledge available at the time, if we're able to go deeper in genomics, I'm sure we will be able to stratify further within this bucket, and bring targeted therapies, and bring new combination of therapies, and, and develop combination of therapies that will be better. So, to your point, this is going to be something that's going to be expensive, not necessarily easy to do at the beginning, and it might cost a bit more money before it costs less money. But I want to emphasize again that up to one-third of the um, uh, dollar spent in oncology has no impact on the outcome. 30 to 70% of the patients who are treated uh, should formulate this differently. The dr- among the drugs that are approved by the FDA, and there's nothing wrong about mm-hmm. this, or drugs approved in the European Community Agency, the, um, all around the world, because they are approved based on an indication after X number of therapies, they still do not work in 30 to 70% of patients. So this is also an opportunity for amplification. So I think the, the matter is that to shift the cost uh, from, from the waste, to a technology that would be more expensive, to novel therapies that you're going to bring earlier, using precision medicine, to give the best treatment available of the day at the time of diagnosis, at that period of time, and to try to use as much as possible a precision medicine dashboard to try to uh, drive the decision. And I think if you give providers a tool to have a better decision at the time of diagnosis and at the time of relapse and at the time of every progression, the outcome will be better because physicians want to do the right thing, obviously. And they're kind of... It's difficult, somewhat lost in translation of care providers because science is going so fast and then the classification of diseases is evolving so fast. The classification of cancers it will evolve from an organ-based to a molecular pathway-based disease. There's no question about this. So we will see drugs that have, will have activity across different tumor types from organ-based classification. So all of this knowledge by using, again, a platform that can provide the support to read the language and help. The last layer that I would add to this, because it's also something that is really very present at Davos this week, is AI, artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence will help us further identify in the non-structured data that we are acquiring from these patients that we have already sorted out to relevant buckets, will allow us to try to identify other trends, other markers that will help us stratify patients further. The advantage of this is that once you develop in some areas, the system is learning, so the decisions are better and better. And therefore, you can implement this at a broad scale. So you need a broad scale to develop precision medicine to identify the buckets within the population. But once you have established these... I don't like the word pathways, but when you have established these roadmaps, if you want to call it, Mm -hmm. then you can expand this at a much broader scale and make it easier and easier.
0: So all in all, after your discussions here in Davos, but also within your council, you're optimistic that in the next 10 to 15 years we'll have a better, more advanced, more inclusive healthcare system? I'm
1: very optimistic that, um, although we have been talking about changing healthcare for decades now, I'm very optimistic that you had a great session last night with over 120 um, um, key, um, uh, key leaders in the field across the different stakeholders. Everyone is on board knowing that we have to do something different. And I think for the first time, we have a roadmap on how we're going to do this. Using data to provide a commonality, a language to try to guide health, prevention, and seek care, better decision to improve the individual outcome and along the way reduce the cost. Well, we all hope that you succeed.
0: Thank you very much. Thank for you for time. having me here. That was André Goua, chairman and director of the John Therer Cancer Center at Hackensack University Medical Center. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos, and that was all from this episode of A Glimpse Into The Future.